You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In 1966, Jan Wenner, suburban Jewish son of a businessman, dropped out of Berkeley. Neither a rebel nor a flower child, he was drawn to rock, the music of generational grievance. Wenner would become the baby boomer's go-to analyst of that music and the culture that produced it. He just needed his mouthpiece. A year after leaving college, from a small apartment on San Francisco's Potrero Hill, Wenner decided to found a magazine. I borrowed money from my mother-in-law, my stepmother, and scraped together $7,500. And we just sort of got some free office space in the uh, printer in San Francisco and had no expenses, no salaries, nothing. Just, you know, it was kind of hand-to-mouth for a while. And you published how? What, what? We had enough money to pay the printer's bill. And since it was printed on 24 pages of really cheap newsprint, the bill was relatively low. So you have something that resembles what now? What did Rolling Stone then look like? It looked like it looked like a the village of, it voice was now. Tabloid size, you know, right. like a village voice size with paper, a paper, and with a front page rather than a cover, which was a later kind of thing that we put on. And uh, it was 24 pages, and we set up in the corner, 25 cents, our price, cheap, which I took from Mad Magazine. Right, right, right. Um, and what, what changed? How does it start to build? What do you attribute that to? Well, I think that it started to build because of the editorial excellence. Because in 1967, the leading edge of the baby boom was just turning 21, 22. The Beatles were still in their mop-top phase. Dylan was doing Highway 61. So rock and roll wasn't covered in the newspapers or television and the movie. It was nowhere else except on the jukeboxes on the radio. It started to build because we were starting to do articles about music that musicians and serious music fans were recognizing as being really important stuff, stuff they wanted to know from the musicians about how they created their music, what they were trying to say, and other kinds of stories about cultural issues that people recognized as being really good. I mean, within our first year, we had presented a two-part interview with Pete Townsend, a big, long interview that I had done with him in which he articulated Tommy for the first time. We had Mick Jagger on the cover. Now, mind you, we had this tiny little thing in San Francisco, 
And for our first anniversary issue, John and Yoko gave us the naked picture of themselves that was banned on their two versions album. And who are how, less than that, year how, old, you, how do you get them to do that? They liked the magazine. They saw so that, what we were doing. Literally that. They liked it. They didn't. I didn't know any of them. You know, I. You know, yet. you kind of met. The, no, and there was no yet. And then there was no publicity machinery, no record company, all this stuff we now call the star making machinery didn't really exist then. You know, the it communication went generally directly with the artists and we'd send copies of issues and they'd see it and they go, oh, I like that. You know, John Yoko, that magazine's about music. It's taking it seriously. You know, it's taking us seriously. You know, we were reviewing Beggar's Banquet and the same way we thought of that in their Satanic Majesty. And we got a letter from Charlie Watts early on saying, geez, we're sorry you didn't like it. We'll try and do better. <laughs> it's funny. It wasn't through any business acumen. It wasn't because I knew how to market or knew anything about business. I knew nothing about business and, or Who publishing. Did? Nobody. Who helped you take it to the next level? How does it go it to the next level? It just kind of grew on its own, you know, through trial and error. I made so many mistakes. Name one. Oh, my God. Let's see. Spending fortunes in... Moving into huge offices with no idea of how we're going to pay for the overhead. Hiring the wrong people. Putting on ad campaigns that... You know, the wrong time. They were small mistakes then. They got to be larger and larger over those years. But you're proceeded. learning the magazine. Your father was not in publishing. Not at all. My mom was a writer, and she taught me how to kind of edit and a lot about writing. But I was the editor of my high school yearbook. And then I worked for NBC News So as a, when I was in college. So I had journalistic experience, but absolutely no business experience. Right. You know, and it was really, it was trial and error. You know, and we would only spend what we cash that we had on hand. You didn't have to go. You, you didn't look for investors and people to, to buy. We a piece did at various time. times, but after the fact, and always at the point at which we didn't really need it, but it seemed like a good idea. Right. You know, I've worked in movies and television for years, and you always hear people talk about the music business as being the worst of all these businesses in terms of the corruption and in terms of the you know the old payola mm -hmm. and people trying to launch musical careers that way. Did you find that that was a big problem for you as the magazine got to be more successful? People wanted to use you to enhance people's careers? I mean, obviously, you know, there were some pressure to cover this or do a cover on this or get a good review, but very little. I mean, through the first 10 years of Rolling Stone, we were in San Francisco before we got to New York. We were relatively isolated from the music business, which was in Los Angeles and New York. So we were kind of an afterthought. You know, we weren't, if we had been in LA and been in the thick of the music business, things would have been much different, but we weren't. We were isolated. And by the time we became a bigger factor, and by the time we got to New York, our reputation was that we weren't going to be persuaded by money or favors or interviews or anything like that. We were independent, and fiercely so, and would just say whatever the fuck, whatever we wanted to say, and we weren't, we weren't going to be held back. So if you were to try and approach us, and bribe us with something or other. I'm sure they tried, though. Not really, because by this time, it was very clear you don't do that to Rolling Stone. Right. You know, Rolling Stone's going to, if they, you do that, we're going to write about it. Because they guess who showed up with $10,000. So that never was a problem, strangely enough. And I'd say one other thing about the music business. I just thought it was a great business, as opposed to, say, the television business, where my experience in television was that I'd never seen so many two-faced people of my life really? in those days of networks. They, they were lowest common denominator, and the right. people were lowest common denominator. Right. And then people in the record business were always having fun, you know, hanging out with the Stones and the Beatles and whatever, and that's what I gravitated towards. What's changed in terms of, because the music business now is, uh, just doesn't resemble the music business Completely 40 years different. ago. <clears throat> when I started, it was pretty much independent labels run by the people who founded those labels or founded the music business. 
like I guess the early days of the movie business. Right. You know, I mean, had a lot of control. Over the years, it's evolved into there are four major record companies. They're owned by huge corporations, and they have sound business practices and accounting standards that have to meet in the New York Stock Exchange type publicly listed company things. So the opportunities are not there, and on top of that, they're not they're not the dominant factor in selling records anymore. What is? Well, radio radio play continues to be, but all this internet stuff, streaming services, downloading services are you know huge distributors of music how was that for you in terms of is it the 80s is it the, is it the 90s when you say to yourself i'm not really keeping up with this anymore it evolves slowly absolutely the phenomenon is true like what is going on today and today in music by today's artists artists have developed over the last five or six years i'm not really that up on i'm right. totally up on you too for example but that's all <laughs> and they've got a new record out and it's great and i just finished at this very table doing an interview with bono uh, last week, which is going to be the next cover. So I'm still involved, you know, with the things I love, but I don't... Um, but you have people that keep up, obviously. Younger people. You know, I'm all, yeah. you know, like Lauren, I'm an old guy. I mean, there was a time when you could predict what was going to be on SNL that week, going to be the same thing that we were doing on the cover of Rolling Stone. So right. people would come to town, they'd be go to 30 Rock for that stuff, and they'd come over to our house, shop, which is a block away, and do that. And... Um, uh, I, when I see what Lauren's got on SNL now, I don't really know who most of them are, except for you know, the occasional, what do you call a Heritage Act, like you two, you know? But the great things about Heritage Acts is they're as vital as ever. I mean, Springsteen is just brilliant and more relevant than ever. Did you see Springsteen's show? Yes. You did. What'd you, what'd you think? I think it's great. Oh, it was haunting. I, heard. I mean, Bruce it, it can shake the last seat in the highest rafters in a place that's got 60,000 people in it. Right. And so put him in a place that's got 800 people and the intensity of his performance and his personality and Bruce is just a remarkable I'm having lunch with him in fact as soon as we're done. What is it about that period? Something happened there with the Beatles, the Stones, and Dylan all being on the stage at the same time that is reminiscent of Paris in the 20s when you had Picasso, Matisse, Leger, all working at one it's time. It's a confluence place, of stars, of, of artists. That don't ever, that hasn't happened since. May happen again, another field in 10 years, something like that, but you had that. Then you also have this situation, the phenomenon, which is what you listen to between the time you are 18 and 22 is your favorite music for the rest of your life and will remain that always. Sure. And that's why you will always turn to that. Because after 22, as you get into the business of working, or having a family, you know, you're, Ability to, to spend so much time involved with that music it gets more and more limited and you get less familiar with it. And of course then there's the evolution of the music itself into forms and formats that are technologically driven or commercially driven and are, are youth driven, you know, that are different than what your imperatives are now. Mm -hmm. I don't myself, I'm not a big rap fan. I've listened to it. I understand the genius of it and the absolute importance of it. I mean, talking about a tribal telegraph that communicated with a different, disenfranchised group of people. I mean, if you were listening to NWA, it's profound, important. They were stuff. onto something, yeah. When did you mark that when Rolling Stone became Rolling Stone? Well, early on, I mean, we, we took as our franchise popular culture at large, thinking that we were going to learn more about what society is about from what was happening in popular culture the same than what was happening in the church or in politics. And then, of course, we started covering politics early on and, 
And our first big hit in politics was in 72 when we sent Hunter Thompson out to cover the presidential campaign. What did you make of him? Because Thompson, for me, only exists as like Johnny Depp in some Baroque kind of right. a movie. What was he really like? Hunter was a one, I mean, Hunter was a crazy person in many ways, but on the other hand, really responsible, you know, thoughtful. He was a Southern gentleman, a charmer, uh, and extraordinarily talented and charismatic, and you loved being with him. Not only because he was so charming and so funny, but also if you were close to him, you felt when hanging out with him, you were gonna, this is as close to the danger zone and the edge as you've ever, as you're ever going to get. Truly. You know, and so there's an excitement to that. I mean, we once, one night we were driving from, in, in Massachusetts, from Cambridge up to Maine, where we're going from staying in Dick Goodwin's, Dick Goodwin's house in Cambridge to see Norman Mailer in Maine. And we drive up in the middle of the night, head full of acid, you know, both of us, in the car, and, he, and all these whining moments, he turns off the headlights. <laughs> he liked playing pranks and being a jokester and practical jokes on people. And so he was enormously fun and enormously talented. He was difficult to work with because he was time-consuming and a little bit unforgiving uh, in his demands on you as an editor. But I, I loved every minute. Of that there were demands in terms of his expense there, account or his word his count? His expense account was, it was, and the word count was great. I just let him we run anything. Were, yeah. In terms of just the demands on your time and your emotional strength right. and your stamina. Needy. I mean, at three o'clock in the morning, your phone rings. You know, well, I've got this, goddammit, and, you know, I'm running out of this, and who do you think people think you are? And, you know, I mean, Hunter, it's three o'clock in the morning, I'm sleeping. Right, right. I don't, he doesn't even hear you say that. Right. You know, so it, would, it, were, it was a full time job to edit Hunter. And during that campaign in 72, the whole business of Rolling Stone came to a halt because I couldn't pay attention to that. All I could do was edit Hunter for a year, you know, and Literally. pay attention to him and his needs, and then, you know, on the side run the company. And it was worth it. Right, right, right. He was worth it. We became just dearest friends forever and ever until he killed himself. And, and uh, which Where were you when you found that out? I was in Sun Valley, you know, sitting in my house, and somebody called me and, you know, made me cry and all that stuff. And but you weren't surprised? No, because Hunter by that time had, uh, was virtually unable to walk. He was incontinent. He had had a series of real serious health set setbacks between all the drug use and abuse he had done to his body. And he was really, honestly, uh, within two months or so of being committed to a home. Yeah. I mean, where he would... In some he was falling form, apart. Yeah, he was falling apart. And, he would be, and, he'd be, and once he was committed, he'd be trapped. I never second-guessed his, his But you decision. mentioned you're driving down the unlit road with him and everybody's dropping acid obviously drugs was that another thing that you had to keep an eye on which was that you didn't go down the tubes like these other people i mean i think that it was very very destructive for some people hunter destroyed him right. i mean it crippled him physically in the end but also really killed his ability to write but luckily most people finally somehow or other found the means to get it under control for right. myself i just you were built differently, maybe? maybe? built differently, or more of a sense of responsibility, right. or I had an agenda, which I had to move, move, do Rolling Stone, it was becoming incompatible with drug use, but I think it has to do with age and getting worn out, and, and certainly it has to do with having kids. I mm. mean, if you have kids and you want to enjoy it's your children, the other. you cannot <laughs> right. be getting up at noon. You can't be drunk every night. Yeah, you can't, yeah. you'll never see them. <laughs> right, right, right. No. So, or they'll get taken away from you. Yeah, or they get taken <laughs> right, away. Right. So it's kind of an abrupt thing, and I think the amount of drug casualties we've seen are relatively really few, given the size of the, the scope of the drug use. 
And yeah. yet you resist. You know, you don't go... Well, I mean, I didn't altogether resist. Right. Uh, but, but overall. Overall, yeah. It could have been worse. It could have been worse. And I saw, I, you know, I saw many people go through this and come out fine, you know. But, I mean, if you look back at all the cocaine use, you have to say part of it was fun. Yeah. You know? And, and then it stops being fun. That's, that's a real true story of our times. There was a period where everybody we knew was taking cocaine. Sure. You couldn't go out yeah. without running into it, at least in arts. You know, circles at uh, that end, and uh, it's forgotten now. Explore the Here's the Thing archives. Lorne Michaels runs his own kind of empire, and it's all on television. For me, commercial television and those boundaries, I like it. I like that you can't use certain language. I like that you have to be bright enough to figure out how to get your ideas across in that amount of time with intelligence being the thing that you're, you hope is showing. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Now, more from my conversation with Rolling Stone owner, for now, Jan Wenner. 
he's decided to put the magazine up for sale. This turning point is a chance to reflect on the artists he spent his life among. Are you like a, the head of an agency? Are you like the head of a studio where these people are your friends, but it's more business and there's kind of a, a the, the, the cloak of friendship around it in terms of business? Well, there's always, the initial introduction is always about business, you know, and uh, after many years of knowing somebody really well, all that kind of drops away. And it's really about just the friendship and the relationship and the vacations together and all that stuff. So there's a number of, I'll not throw up the names now, a very rare thing for well, me. Pick a couple of people who you've met, like, you met royalty in music. Who impressed you? <clears throat> all the best people impressed me. I mean, you're talking about people who are incredibly talented and creative. And people who are incredibly talented and creative are generally fascinating, charismatic personalities and great fun to hang out with, you know. And I am uh, in awe of t talent. I, I really cherish it. It's valuable. It's something I, I celebrate. It's, it's what Rolling Stone celebrates. But... You know, like Mick, for instance, I've known Mick for 49 to 50 years. I've been right, doing right. this. And he's his own, uh, he's sui generis. I mean, he's an <laughs> extraordinary individual. There's no one else like him who has that level of charisma, who's not only as talented as an artist and a singer, but also as a businessman, a producer of the concerts, a producer of everything. I mean, so he's something I kind of hold on in uh, awe and still do. On the other hand, we have vacationed together so many times, you know, and we've been in each other's house so much and have such a good, nice friendship. What the hell do you do on vacation with Mick Jagger? You guys like, you cook? <laughs> no, we just... You we have, have people who cook. You have people who... Right. You, you what know, do you, you do? Well, uh, you, there's a lot of boats if you're going to the Caribbean, right. and there's a lot of sailing, and there's a lot of hanging out, and there's a lot of meals, you know, and sometimes they're a little smoking and dope, and then watching movies. The most fun with Mick, in a way, I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, is sitting around a campfire singing where he brings his guitar. We go for a picnic, you know, five, six, seven, or eight of us. And then he I want sits to sing down by the and he campfire sings. With and, you know, you know, I say, well, play me no expectations. He does that. And then we sing a Dylan song together. And, you know, it's just rare and extraordinary times. An interesting thing for me, because you know Jacker really, really well, is so the Beatles are red hot and they're really producing records for it's not it's less than a decade. 61, 62 through 67. Yeah, 67. And the Stones go on forever. forever. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? Why does one band... Well, you know, I think with the Beatles you had a very volatile personality in John. You had an extraordinary level of popularity and intensity that nobody has ever had before right. or since. And pressure. I think that that, that pressure made it really difficult for them to stay together. And they and when as drugs came along, that's when they broke up. You know, I mean I think drugs exacerbated their differences. How do, how do the Stones survive fifty years well, later? Well first off the Stones broke up really. Nobody knows it, but they you know, throughout the eighties, you know, they didn't tour, they didn't make records, you know, they were functionally broken up. And I think that Mick is a is was really persistent about wanting to find the opportunity when they could get back together again. And he was able to effect a reconciliation with Keith. And, um, you know, but that whole period, again, drugs, that whole period, Keith was taking drugs for 10, 12 years and impossible to work with. You know, I mean, if somebody's stoned all the time, you just can't go in the studio. You can't write together. You can't do anything together. You can't actually, you can't even plan a tour together. You don't know if the guy's going to be busted in Canada or not, or is he going to show up on stage? And all this. So all those difficulties drove them apart. And they just had to wait out the drug period. Right. And now 
I think both Keith and Mick went solo, tried to see what it was like, because it wasn't going to work. It's better together. And that people wanted to see them together. And so they, you know, despite all, and despite Keith's book, they've been able to work again together. And, and they do. And they both happen to love being on the road. You know, Mick loves to sing. He's a musician. Yeah. I mean, in the end of the day, Mick likes to sit around, play guitar, talk about music. And, and, and Mick apparently uh, uh, functions as kind of an almost quasi-management yes. component. Whereas you look at the Beatles and you say, when Epstein died, they didn't have everything started to fall apart. Yeah. And there's a vacuum there. Who's going to tell everybody what time to go to the studio? We've got to get a record. We've you, mm-hmm. you got to do this. We've got to go well, to was work. Also, they, the Beatles, there was a struggle over the leadership. I mean, Paul wanted to be in charge. John let him, but it was... But complained. They didn't have a wise voice telling him what to do. And Mick is... Among all other things, is incredibly sober, yeah, smart businessman. Smart businessman, yeah. you know, who who sees the bigger picture. I did this interview with Mick, the only big long interview he's ever given, which we did finally because he's not a guy given to that type of stuff. But I just finally said to him, "This took place out in Long Island, Amagansett." I said, "You know, we really should do this because I mean, we know each other so well, and we kind of owe it to history to to sit down and take the opportunity to Put lay it down. Who yeah. wrote this and wrote that and." You know, I mean, nobody's better to do that right now than me. I mean, we trust each other. So anyway, so we do the interview. One of the questions was, he said, what do you think about when you're on stage, you know, and you're singing? You know, when do you get in the moment? When do you have the moment? He says, most of the time I'm up there singing along and I think, thinking to myself, God, did I remember to get the leaves out of the gutter back home? <laughs> like everybody. Yeah, he said, mostly, though, I'm looking at the girls. Now, uh... Lennon, obviously, was he someone you were close to as well? No, not nearly as close. Not, no. I mean, first off, he died in 1980. I met him in the late 60s, and we became a correspondence and an acquaintanceship. And I, he, I visited his house. He came out to San Francisco to visit with us. And then I did that big interview with him. Uh, and after that, we had a little bit of a falling out. Because I printed that interview as a book. He didn't want to publish as a book, but I felt it was my right to publish a book. It was a super historic document. And that book is still in print. In fact, the last edition of it, Yoko wrote the introduction to it. And, you know. and it's an interesting book, an interesting interview, because he, and he talks about how it was the first time he had ever discussed the Beatles and what it was really like inside and what pain and misery it was for him at that time. But he's like all of... When we did an interview, I was like 24, and he's like 27 or something like that. And it's, it's, we're so young, making such big pronouncements about life. But after that, I didn't, wasn't really friendly. We'd be yeah. in touch and com, you know, communication letters back and forth. But he was living in New York. I was living in San Francisco. And didn't see much of him at the end. But I consider uh, him to have been a friend and an ally. I mean, he, was, he did more, many great things for Rolling Stone in addition to, he gave us that interview and the Two Virgins cover and all sorts of things throughout the what year. What about Dylan? Bob's another case. <laughs> Bob, Bob is, uh, I consider a friend and uh, a colleague and we've had a wonderful relationship for years for the whole history of Rolling Stone. And it's not like we hang, he, he has come, he did come to my house once and we spent the day together in Idaho, it was fantastic. And I watched him playing guitar with my little son and, and all that stuff. But we've had a really good, supportive relationship. I mean, I think the mission of Rolling Stone in great part was always to present Bob to an audience, to his audience, to the audience at large. I mean, his name Rolling Stone, after all. And we viewed him, and I viewed him as 
really the most important writer of our times and uh, most talented songwriter. And I mean, above and beyond everybody else. And so we were kind of an ambassador for him to his audience. And I felt part of our mission was always to be presenting Bob to our audience. And, and I think Bob saw that and understood that. Despite all the reputation of Bob being reclusive and silent all the time, he's done 14 major interviews over the years with Rolling Stones. I've done two of them myself. And we have cherished him and supported him and criticized him as necessary, where our writers didn't like self-portrait or didn't like this thing or that thing, but been, a, been supportive. I mean, uh, uh, without Bob Dylan, nothing. You know, I mean, there's no Rolling Stone, there's no rock and roll, you know, Without him. Now, what's the provenance of the name Jan for a Jewish kid from Northern California? Where does where does Jan come from? My parents like fans of Jan Sibelius, the composer. <laughs> so we do a name for Sibelius. Yes. My mother played piano. She played classical music. We grew up listening to her play Mozart and Chopin and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of classical music around. They also had these sets of seventy-eight records and like books, like sleeves and. And I remember offhand South Pacific, Odetta, you know, a uh, couple other musicals, Billy Holiday. No jazz. It was, you know, kind of show tunes, classic music, and folk music. And that's what I grew up with. And you grew up on? I grew up with that. And then when the rock and roll thing came around, when I was about eight or nine, was about, you know, I was eight in 1950s. And grab hold of what? First record I ever bought was Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley. And along with my first 45 record player, I was eight years old at the time, or seven. And this kind of grew, got into that rock and roll thing and the radio and all this stuff. And it was the time of Pat Boone and Elvis Presley and the Everly's. And we'd hear all that. And that's still music today that I can still know every word to every song. And well, The first one for me was Twist and Shout. Now, certainly these last many years, there's been changes in the culture. There's been changes in your life as well. Mm -hmm. And Elton John kind of uh, authorized you to out him in a magazine. Yes, and yet you were living your life mm -hmm. a completely different way back then, correct? Mm -hmm. Was it difficult for you? No, it wasn't really. To live your life the way you formerly did? Was it, was it stressful? No, you know, I, never, I was never that conflicted about it. Because right. uh, it wasn't that big an issue. I kind of had a happy marriage. Was That's who you were business. then? So I was fine and, you know, all that. And I wasn't really thinking of doing anything radical or coming out or throwing my life over. But then I met somebody. I, You know, it felt natural and it felt easy because I was kind of in the circumstances where these things are relatively easy. And I didn't think it all through. I'm impulsive and I, the environment was supportive. And um, it was a little crazy at first, you know, with... Um, all the publicity was trying to swirl around about it and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, sooner or later, you know, everybody kind of reconciled to the idea and accepted it. And I never, I never lost a friend because of it. I've never changed friends. And your adult kids? Yeah, my kids were in high school and were in grammar school at that time. My oldest kids, I remember my, one of my kids going home and saying, Daddy, Daddy, at school, they, 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 they told me, you were, they said you were being gay with someone. But, you know, it's the right thing to do. And... And Elton, I remember, I saw that he had said that, and I, I did call him up and say, you sure you want to say this? You know what you're saying? Just to double check, you know? Because it, it's personal and private, and I think in a great sense, part of our job is to be protective of artists, you know, and, and, and nurture their art, you know? Um, so I just wanted to give him that courtesy. Uh, but a lot of that's worked out. 
But so the, you, you're married. I'm married. I have so you and Matt are married. Three and you have three kids together. Yeah. What went into that decision? Well, I Something mean, you both wanted? Yeah. Yeah. You wanted another round of that. Yeah. I, I love children. I yeah. wanted to have a big family. And, um, you know, I had three children with Jane. And then um, Matt helped raise them, you know, when they were, we split them half the time. And he was deeply involved in it and wanted to go on. He's from a family of 10 kids. Where's he from? Detroit. What kind of work does he do? Raises a family now. But before that, he was working for um, Calvin. And, um, you know, kids are, if you, if you love them, they're great, you know. Wait, are these our special guest stars? Who's this? Oh. Are these Come both yours? Are they both You're yours? talking about you guys. Are these both yours? Yeah. Oh, my God. You just entered on cue. Who did I write the, who's, which one's Jude? I wrote your autograph here, and I wrote, I'm Alec, by the way. I know. Nice to meet you. How are you? I wrote to you, I wrote, why would you want my autograph when your dad is Jan Wenner? Because he's met you, I haven't, it's um, not fair. Well, it's very nice, to, we're talking want, all about you. Yeah, we were just talking about raising kids. I just want you kids. to know I watch every one of your Trump skits. Oh my God, isn't it crazy? Yes. It's so crazy, it's so, I'm not doing right, but I must say I'm getting very tired of it, you know? The Trump, the Trump stuff has been brilliant up to like, it was more slapsticky. Trump in the shower. Right. Which silly. didn't silly didn't get the thing that made has made Trump so great in addition to your skill at it is that it's gotten so to the truth of who he is. Right. And what he does it's this almost real. You know, you see can't you're not in danger to threaten by are we losing them? Hey guys. guys. It's nice to meet you both. It's very nice to meet you. Kiss by nice Thank you. you. I call what you're describing what I call is I mean, I say it's the miracle of of human life that you see every day, and to watch them grow is a miracle. And you're, as a parent, you're exposed to that on a constant basis, and that's what's so glowing and special about but, it. And it's also, so, well, let's face it, at your age, at my age, I tell people all the time, how many more premieres can I go to? Mm -hmm. How many more award shows do I need to mm -hmm. go to? I mean, I've done enough of that mm -hmm. in the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, Graydon has uh, walked away. Uh, Tina Brown is not publishing anymore. She's looking mm -hmm. more into multimedia. And now you're going to, the remaining piece you own, you want to sell. We're going to sell it, but I don't anticipate walking away from it. You know, I still have contributions to make and still understand certain things. So, you know, I mean, that's slow. I'm not going to walk away from it. What's a Rolling Stone cover that Jan Winter might have on the wall above his? Hmm. Probably is that famous picture Annie took of John and Yoko the weekend that uh, he was killed, uh, then curled up together. It was yeah. that same weekend? That was that weekend, yeah. It was like 24 hours before she shot that picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if I show up at the campfire with you and Mick, you said you and Mick would sing, he'd break out the guitar and sing No Expectations. That's, I immediately call Mick and suggest Tell that. Mick, please tell yeah. him, save a space on the log for me by the fire, okay? Deal. That was Rolling Stone founder Jan Wenner with cameos from Noah and Jude. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.